0: In Genesis chapter eleven, and we're gonna look at verses one through nine. Genesis 11, 1 through nine. There we go. All right, so can someone start the the clock? Uh oh. That's okay. Genesis 11, one through nine. I went over last time and I was devastated. So I'm trying to course correct, but I can start a timer here. So actually, let me just do this real quick. All right, Genesis 11, one through nine, let me read it and then we'll get into um, breaking down what's going on here. so that they may not understand one another's speech, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off the building and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord displaced them, dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Amen. So, um, as we start today, I, I remember. Back to a time uh, last year in September, we got the opportunity to go on vacation, and we went to my favorite type of vacation, which is a beach vacation, because I love to swim, love to snorkel, and just be in the water. And so my goal on this vacation every day was to go in the water and swim, which I attempted to do. I remember one particular day we went out, this is probably our third or fourth day out there, and um, I'm getting my snorkel gear ready to jump in the water and start splashing around. And I see a sign on the lifeguard uh, stand that says, no one's allowed to swim today because the water's too rough. And I was like, huh, that's strange. I looked out at the water and it didn't look too bad. The the waves were maybe coming up to where my waist might be. But what we learned as I was just talking to people around town and on the beach was what's particularly dangerous in places where uh, the ocean comes in like that isn't the surface waves you see, it's the undercurrent. And unless you're a really skilled swimmer, which I am not, um, unless you're a really skilled swimmer, the undercurrent will just kind of pull you further and further away from shore. And especially if you're snorkeling, before you know it, you look up and you're way far away from where you want it to be. And so as I thought about that, what's particularly dangerous about undercurrent is you don't see it. Right? It's not like a giant tidal wave that's coming in that's going to crash and hit you and you can avoid it. It just subtly and slowly pulls you further and further away. And like I said, before you notice it, you're way far away from the shore. I think our passage today has an undercurrent that we need to examine. If you read it on the surface, it seems like these people want to build a city and a tower, and God comes down and destroys it and spreads them all over the earth. And it seems like these people wanna do some admirable things. They wanna build a city, they wanna be together, they wanna walk in unity, and God comes down and blows it all up. But if you're not aware of the undercurrent, God's actions in this passage might not make sense. There's one thing in the Bible that is pretty clear from Genesis to Revelation. There's a theme. And that theme is that in so many different ways, God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble the actions that led to the tower and the city being built don't necessarily look bad on the surface, but the undercurrent of what's going on is dangerous because the undercurrent is pride. And we'll get into all the ways that I think it shows up in this passage, but just like with the ocean, the thing that's particularly different, difficult about pride is you don't always necessarily see it or feel it like you're being a prideful person. But then one day you look up and you've drifted drifted from your community, you've drifted from the Bible, you've drifted from your church, you've drifted even from your faith. Um, I think C.S. Lewis makes a really wise observation about pride um, in one of his books. He says this, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. I think C.S. Lewis is right when he says that pride leads to every other vice. And just for definition's sake, um, I'm going to use that word a lot today. Merriam-Webster defines pride as an inherent self-confidence or an inherent self-satisfaction. And the key in all the ways that you might parse that definition is Self. And for a Christian, that self-focus can be pretty subtle, but self-governance, self-satisfaction, self-focus, whatever you want to call it, eventually leads us into sin. It might be something really innocent when you're growing up. You think to yourself, you know, when I grow up, I want to do this or that. I want to be something or somebody. And what your pride will tell you is, you know what? You know best. And then as you grow up and become skilled or maybe achieve things in life, you think, you know, I've earned all this and I don't feel like I need to share it with anybody. And again, your pride will tell you, you know what, you know best. And then at some point, maybe later on in life, you've, you're have you successful, you've got everything you want out of life and you think, you know, it's been a hard day on the job. I think I need to go to that website. Or I think I need to call that person who's not my spouse, who I have this uncompromising, poor relationship with. And your pride, again, will tell you, you know what? You know best. So it's that constant reinforcement that whatever I think, whatever I want, whatever I need to do, I am self-governing and I'm self-determined. And in so many ways, I know best. And it can be very subtle at first. Like I said, you can look all over the Bible and find different ways and different themes that God opposes the proud. And there are some in this passage today. So what I want to do is first start by unpacking how pride shows up in the narrative we have here. I then want to look at how God responds to the pride of the people. And lastly, I want to examine and look at how we can embrace the opposite of pride. Because in order to to truly turn from pride, we can't just turn from pride. We have to turn to something as an alternative. So let's start just by looking at the passage today and and how this might show up. Starting in verse 1, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in land of Shinar and settled there. First, the idea of people having one language. Understand that chronologically this falls sometime after the flood and before the call of Abram or Abraham, which you get in later chapters. And answers vary on when exactly down to the year this event happened and when exactly or how people developed their own language. Did they have their own languages at the time and they spoke a common mother tongue to relate to each other? Or was this event the catalyzing event where they all truly spoke a language together and then the scattering of the people allowed them to speak their own languages? There's debate on how exactly chronologically that happens. But regardless, uh, what you see is if you look in chapter 10, um, before this, before we're in chapter 11, if you look in chapter 10, there's descriptions of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and there's descriptions of each of them having tribes and languages and descendants of their own. So this is Genesis 10, 31 and 32. These are the sons of Shem and their, cl- their clans and languages and in their territories and nations. These are the clans of Noah's son, according to their lines of descent within their nations. From these, the nations spread out all over the earth after the flood. So the description of Shem's descendants and their languages lets us know, like I said, that this event occurred sometime during Shem's life, but after the flood. And again, you people could debate when exactly the actual pinpoint year was, but the Tower of Babel is what catalyzed the scattering of people that you read about in Genesis 10.32. Now, before they scatter, you have a group of people who are settling down in a land called Shinar. And what's significant about this and what I think it's foreshadowing is the direction that the people are going. It it gives us a, a, a clue into the undercurrent that's at work here. The direction they head is eastward. Other commentators talk about this, and Pete actually put it in a previous discussion guide, that if you read Genesis, there's this common theme of people moving east and east being a direction away from God's presence. So Adam and Eve are sent eastward out of the garden. Cain is sent eastward from God's presence. And here, the people migrate east and settle in a land called Shinar, which I think gives us some subtle indication that something is about to go wrong. And I think we get more evidence of things going wrong as you go on and kind of dig underneath the surface of what's happening. For example, remember in chapter nine, what God had told Noah. God told Noah, even calling back to Genesis one, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And here we get the description that the people are moving east but not just East, we also get a description that they're doing the opposite of what God told Noah to do. They decide, we're going to build a tower, we're going to be together, and this tower is going to go up to the heavens. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be displaced over the face of the whole earth. Do you notice how the logic is almost the exact opposite of what God told them to do in Genesis 9? So it seems like there's this innocent kind of settling down and building shelter, and making a name for ourselves, but it has its roots in the dangerous undercurrent of pride. So just like I said earlier, your self can kind of tell you things, and your pride just rubber-stamps it and confirmed it. And for them, their self said, "You know, we should build a tower in a city. And their pride said, you know best. I remember when I was a kid, my parents used to tell me to do chores first and foremost, but also how to do my chores. So for example, uh, washing the dishes. Rinse the dishes off first, put the dishes in the dishwasher, dry the dishes, then put them away. Now me, being a kid who knew everything, um, I decided, you know, I'll wash the dishes, but I can figure this out myself. I really don't need to rinse them off. I really don't need to dry them. The dishwasher is good enough by itself. I'm just gonna shove them all in there, let the dishwasher run, and then just throw them back in the cabinet. And every time I would do that, my parents would come home, the dishes would be, have spots all over them, there'd be food particles everywhere, and they would make me do it again. I'd get corrected. And what caused me to think I could do things my own way was as a kid, my pride. What my pride was telling me was, hey, you're not disobeying them. You're still doing the dishes. You're just adding your own twist to it. And that's what pride tells us. We can have our own way. We can obey what we're being told, but also figure out our own way to do it ourselves, which ultimately is really in itself disobedience. That's what pride does. And that's why C.S. Lewis, I think, has it right when he says, pride is the root of all types of other sins. In this passage, you can see types of other sins sort of taking root in what might be happening. First and foremost, if you look at the construction of the tower itself, in verse three, it says, They said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. That might seem innocent, but if you look at the word for make, the Hebrew word used for make in verse three, when it's used in the context of making bricks, it shows up two other times in the Old Testament. And those times are in reference to pyramids. Pharaoh forcing the children of Egypt to burn bricks and make them to construct the city or the the construction that they wanted to do in Egypt. So what you could have happening here is, yeah, we're going to make bricks, but it might not necessarily be willfully. Someone's going to make the bricks. Someone's going to burn them. And it might be against that person's will. Remember when you're building a city, you're building a tower at this time, there's no mass construction. There's no mass production. There's no cranes. There's no, you know, excavators to be able to do this. Someone's got to put a hand to a plow and put their hands in, in, in the ground and make these bricks. And it could be that in this case, this is forced labor that that is about to start to happen. There's gonna be somebody subjugated to have to make this tower and make this city. What you also have at work here is the idea that the city itself, or the tower itself, excuse me, the materials that are used for it, oftentimes in that context were used for waterproofing. Now the significance of waterproofing, remember God's covenant with Noah, God told Noah he's not going to flood the earth again, but now they're making a tower, perhaps waterproofing a tower in a sense where they're saying, hey, God, we know what you told Noah, but just in case, we're going to build this waterproof structure so that we'll be safe. Even with those possibilities, what you have is a clear denial of what God told Noah in Genesis 9 to fill the earth. You see them kind of doing things their own way here. They said to themselves, come let us build a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves lest we be displaced over the whole earth. Now notice the aspiration for the tower in particular with its top in the heavens. I think I have a picture of it, there it is. There's lots of artistic depictions of what the tower could have looked like. But the top being in the heavens, there is perhaps a religious aspect to this. One commentator pointed out, which I did appreciate, that if you research the history of Babylon, later on Babylon, there's a fascination with astrology and a lot of cult practices that occurred there. And there's perhaps other reasons that this tower had to have its top in the heavens, perhaps protection from war, perhaps, um, like I said, some type of astrological desire. But regardless of all those outcomes, whether it's the possibility of oppression, the possibility of waterproofing, the possibility of astrology or cultic worship, There is an undercurrent here of pride in which the people are now being seen to do things their own way, as opposed to what God told them in Genesis 9. And I think you see this come out more particularly if you move on to verse four. Like I said, come, let us build a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be displaced over the whole earth. The more explicit things you can see directly here, I think are are boiled down to three categories. The first is the people are self-centered, Second, they're self-righteous. Third, they are self-reliant. Self-centeredness. First, if you look at the phrase, come let us build for ourselves, and then later on in, in chapter 11, make a name for ourselves. Remember the context of what's happened here. Just a few chapters back, God in his grace rescues Noah and his family and all the animals from the flooding of the entire earth. He saves them by grace alone. They're brought back on dry ground. They survive. They're some of the few survivors of the whole earth being judged. And not too long after that, who do they want to make a name for? Themselves. You know who's not getting enough credit here? Us. We were saved miraculously from a flood that destroyed the entire earth, but we need to make a name for ourselves. And that sounds a bit pious and and ridiculous, but I want to just pause here and make a, 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 a parallel statement that We are in a very similar position to the people that are in this passage because we are saved by means that are totally outside of our control. If Ephesians is true that we are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ, then we are in the same position as the people who were delivered miraculously from the flood. We have nothing that we can claim that has led to our salvation. So if it sounds ridiculous for them to want to make a name for themselves, Consider what it sounds like for us. When we were dead in sin, dead in our transgressions, God miraculously saves us through the mercy of Jesus. Consider what it sounds like when we desire to make a name for ourselves. We're in the same position as the people were. I like the way that Tony Evans puts it. He, he had a nice commentary on this part of the passage. He says that the people were like teenagers. They didn't mind reaping the benefits of God's protection and provision, but they didn't want to recognize God or live according to his rules. I was like that when I was a teenager. I didn't pay any bills, I didn't pay my insurance, I didn't work, I didn't do my laundry, but I was like, hey, mom and dad, don't crowd me, I want to be treated like an adult. It's You want the best of both worlds, you want your autonomy, but you still certainly don't mind reaping the benefits of the protection and provision that you get. And like I said, we can commit the same type of mistake if we're not careful. There's another aspect of pride here that's, that's subtle, and it's not, again, the people waving their fist at God and saying they don't want him, but it's self-righteousness. This is where the people say, we want a city with its top in, we want a tower with its top in the heavens. Like I said, heavens here is a broad term. It can mean sky, it can mean stars, it can mean universe, but it's essentially saying, we wanna build a tower that's gonna to carry us into an unknown realm. And remember back to God's command, you're supposed to fill the earth and, and subdue it, be among the livestock and on the ground. But here they're saying the opposite. We want to transcend into the unknown. Now what's interesting is even if you read back to Genesis 6, the description of how Noah interacts with God, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then there's the story of deliverance, the story of the ark and everything that comes after that, the, the depicting of grace. But what's The opposite of that is that here the people are saying, we don't need to find favor in your eyes, God. We'll make our way to be able to be recognizable by you. Essentially, we'll make our way from earth to you, as opposed to you having to look down and find favor and see us. That concept, that idea, that we'll make a way for God to know us or accept us is the foundation of many other religions. It's essentially, I, I can live good enough in some way, shape or form to merit God's approval. And there are even Christians who live like that, where I've been saved by grace, but now I can live in ways that will merit God to give me the things that I want out of life. All of that is pride at work. And again, it's a a subtle thing that leads to other sins later on down the line. Here we have self-centeredness, we have self-righteousness, and lastly, self-reliance. The people were told to fill the earth, but they decide to do it their own way. They know best. And it's a community decision. They consult, they talk among themselves, and no one seems to remember the covenant that God made with Noah. What's interesting is that Noah is probably around at this time. And he doesn't seem to object like, yeah, we should make a name for ourselves. That sounds great. I was delivered miraculously and God made a covenant with me, but making a name for ourselves sounds like a good idea. They consult among themselves and they are self-reliant and decide to do what they'd like to do. Like I said, there are some good intentions that possibly at work here. They wanna be protected. They wanna be unified. They wanna be, in some ways, significant. But all of those good intentions, apart from God's direction, are simply manifestations of our pride. That's why Proverbs starts off with, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you fear the Lord, then you understand and can discern His will. Trust not in your own understanding. But if God is just a consultant to give you what you want out of life, then the undercurrent of pride will just pull you further and further into different types of sin. So in this case, self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-reliance, these are all subtle patterns that lead to bigger sins. And what's particularly dangerous about all these things is that they can lead to worldly success. It's possible that if, the, if God would have allowed it to continue, The people could have completed the city, they could have built something that was magnificent, and we'd read about them in the history books, and we'd applaud them for their ingenuity, their bravery, their work ethic, and all of that would have been a manifestation of their pride. Like I said, pride is dangerous because it can bring worldly success. There are uh, stories of more than one famous musician rehearsing for the big show or the big concert, and during rehearsal, someone messes up A backup dancer's off. The stage isn't right. The lighting's off. The music isn't quite at the right levels. In mid-rehearsal, the artist would say, hey, who messed up? You? You're fired. And they just fire the person on the spot. I say the artist because you can read stories about Prince doing this, um, but lots of artists would have that same sort of self-centeredness. If you mess up in my rehearsal, you're fired. If you mess up around me, you're gone. Self-centeredness, self-righteousness, I'm a human that messes up, but if you mess up, see you later. And like I said, the reason people do that is because it gets results. There are lots of great musicians who have that kind of attitude because it leads to worldly success. But Jesus, when he was speaking to, in parables, told a story about a man who had lots of worldly success that led him to, um, into a lot of wealth, and that wealth led the man to be self-directed and build bigger barns to hold his wealth. This is what Jesus had to say about the man. The man says, And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. The things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. So Jesus's words about someone who walks in pride and doesn't consult God or acknowledge God, but has lots of worldly success, fool, fool. And it's possible that there are people today who have incredible amounts of worldly success who might hear those words from Jesus at the end of their life. That's pretty scary and that's pretty sobering. But if you have that lens, when the Lord comes down to Babel and stops all of this from happening, It actually sounds like grace and not God being a micromanager and just being jealous of the fact that the people are making something that's tall. The tower could have been like Egypt. It could have been like Pharaoh where this goes on a little longer and God has to send plagues and have a whole dramatic parting of the Red Sea where a lot of people face catastrophe because Pharaoh was prideful and didn't wanna do what God said. But God disciplines those he loves and here he intervenes a bit earlier. So that's how pride shows up, self-reliance, self-satisfaction, all focused on self. But when we look at how God deals with it, picking up in verse five, I think we'll see that there, like I said, is grace at work here and not just God being a micromanager. Again, verse five, the Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are all one people, they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come." Let us go down and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So he confuses their language, he sends them out to go all over the earth like he told them, And Babel, the city and the tower, are known throughout parts of the Old Testament, later translated Babylon. This is where people fall into sin. This is a city that's typically known for its idolatry. The Israelites are actually taken captive here in later parts of the Old Testament. So it is a city, but it's not the one that the people thought it would be. Now you could end the sermon and you could end the story here and say, well, I guess the lesson here to be learned is that pride is bad and we shouldn't be prideful or else God will oppose us. And that is right and that is true. Pride is bad. We shouldn't be prideful or God will oppose us like he did the people at the Tower of Babel. But if we only look at it through that lens, we run the risk of going in circles. Because essentially what we're saying at this point is, I myself will be less prideful. I will self-direct myself to be less self-directed. It's a vicious circle. You kind of just turn in on yourself which is why we can't just turn from pride, we have to turn to something. And to do that, I think we have to zoom out a bit from what's going on in this passage and look at how it relates to the broader Old Testament narrative, which we're gonna talk about next week, but I'll give you a little preview. Right after chapter 11 and chapter 12, we meet a man named Abram. And in Genesis 12, God promises Abram to be made a father of many nations. And these are nations, by the way, that God just created by scattering them, all over the world. So while God opposes the proud, he doesn't abandon them. God promises Abram, not long after Babel, and that shows us that God works despite our mistakes, despite our sin, and even despite our pride. And just like God had a covenant with Noah, God had a covenant with Abraham. And just like God's covenant with Noah, he messed up in some ways, God made a covenant with Abraham, Abraham messed up in some ways as well. And just like the covenant with Noah, which had a covenant sign, the rainbow, God's covenant with Abraham had a covenant sign as well. That sign was circumcision. And while God was giving that circumcision covenant to Abraham, he did essentially a ceremony where they made a contractual agreement about the covenant itself. You can read about it in Genesis 15. Oh, that was the call of Abraham. I skipped that, sorry. Genesis 15, nine through 20. This is essentially where God makes a covenant with Abram and says, Uh, we're going to do a ceremony. And this is typical for the people at the time. You divide up animal pieces, you place them on opposite sides, and the people who are entering the covenant together would walk through the pieces together and recite the terms of the covenant. And essentially what you're saying is that if either one of us breaks the terms of the covenant, we should end up with the fate of these animals who we've split in half and put on opposite sides. So you're making a pretty serious promise. Now what happens is in this covenant ceremony, Abram falls into a deep sleep, I can relate to that. I like to take naps. Abram falls asleep. God passes through the animal pieces himself, essentially saying, I will be the one who is liable if either of us breaks this covenant. So this points us to the fact that one, we do all fail and God has a plan for that because Abram failed, Adam failed, Noah failed. And what this points us to ultimately is Jesus, the one who does suffer and who is mistreated, for all of our failings to uphold God's covenant promise. Abram, Noah, Adam, me, you, we all fail. And God keeps his word despite our failures. You see it come together so beautifully if you read all of the, not all of the gospels, many of the gospels start with a, 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 a family lineage, a history, a tracing of people. And this one starts at Abraham and goes all the way to Jesus. So what this shows us is that God had a plan from the beginning, going back to Adam, but even at Abraham, God had a plan to redeem his people. And if you were to take and look up the history of each of these people, which we can't do today, I think we've done this in other sermons, all of them have major mistakes, major missteps, major sin in their life, and it ends with Jesus who is called the Christ. So God had a plan from the beginning to redeem us from our sin and to redeem us from our pride. I like even the the end of verse 11 there. It talks about the people being deported to Babylon. So we're going in circles. We're committing the same sins. We're ending up in the same place. And it ends with Jesus. God had a plan from the beginning. Acts 17, 26 says this well. From one man, he created all the nations, but they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out their appointed times in history and their boundaries of their lands. And God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any of us." So God had a plan from the beginning. So again, the message of this sermon and the message of Babylon could be, don't be prideful or else God will oppose you, which is good and true. But if you look at the trajectory of Babylon through the broader lens of scripture, what we see is that God pursues prideful, arrogant, sinful, and rebellious people, and wins them back to himself by laying down his life for us. And if that's true, you know what that should make us? Humble. Now, if our pursuit of humility is just another exercise in getting wrapped around ourselves and thinking of ways that we can improve ourselves, then it's really just pride. But if our humility starts with a recognition that God does what we cannot do, God rescues us from the sin that we cannot save ourselves from, God rescues us and pulls us from that dangerous undercurrent that we can't swim out of ourselves, then we can embrace true humility. In order to turn from pride, we have to turn to Jesus. If pride is this dangerous undercurrent that sort of just gradually pulls you into all types of sin, embracing Jesus means humbling yourself and saying, I can't beat this on my own. I need the power of the Spirit, the work of the gospel to help me break free from this sin. Almost like if you were pulled out by the ocean or pulled out by the undercurrent into the deep ocean, you would need a life jacket to keep you from drowning. The spirit is like that life jacket. It keeps you from drowning in your pride. Now, I think the analogy, what I appreciate about that imagery is, if you have a life jacket on, and you wanna get back to shore, guess what you have to do? Kick your legs. You still have to swim. So we are recipients of grace. The gospel does make us new. The gospel does keep us from drowning in sin, and we still have to fight our sin. It's a both and. So God's response to pride is not just saying, I'm gonna scatter these people and hope that they learn a lesson. God's response to pride is ultimately being faithful by sending us Jesus to redeem us from our pride and from all the other sins that it results in. And again, in order to turn from pride, we must turn to Jesus. So what does it look like to swim back to shore? What does it look like to actually kick your legs and seek to get back from where sin and pride has pulled me and you and all of us to? Turning from pride and turning to Jesus does not mean we just walk around and, you know, try to be humble and look at the ground and have, have our tail between our legs and, you first, no, you first, no, you first. Like, you know, that kind of like self-centered, I'm gonna be a really nice person to show how humble I am. I actually appreciate that. I think there is a real depiction of what this looks like in scripture. It's not just feeling sorry for yourself. If you look in Acts 2, there is a description of people living humbly in light of what Jesus has done for them. This is almost a symmetrical story to Babel, but it's the good version of it and not the negative version of it. Acts 2, this is after Jesus is crucified, his early followers are gathered, and this is a description of what takes place. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all there together in one place. And suddenly they came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues of fire um, appeared as to rest on them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to one another in tongues as the Spirit gave utterance. Now they were dwelling in now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, "Are these not?" Uh, are these not speaking Galileans? How is it not that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Amalites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors of Rome, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking them, said, they are filled with new wine. Can someone bring me a water bottle? Perfect timing, thank you. Excuse me. I should have brought one up here. So we have people gathered, right? just like we have in Babel, a gathering of people. And this time, God's spirit, like a wind, fills and comes down and visits the people. But this time it's not in judgment, it's God giving grace to the humble. And he blesses the people to understand their language and to understand all the languages of the people and the nations that are there. These are nations that God scattered, he's now bringing together by the power of the spirit. Some onlookers, their only expression or only way to interpret this was to say, these people are drunk. But later, Peter gets up and gives a sermon essentially explaining what's happening here, that this is, no, this is God fulfilling his covenant promise, pouring out his spirit on all people, and allowing everybody from all these nations that God scattered in Babylon to come together and to hear about Jesus in what's described as a mighty work of God. And the result of this, like I said, is God's covenant promise being filled, but we also get, I think, what's a visual of what it looks like for God's people to live humbly together in light of what Jesus did. This is Acts chapter two, did I skip it? There we go. Acts chapter two, 42 through 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and distributing all the proceeds to anyone as he had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." So earlier I talked about in Babylon you have these three elements of self-reliance, self-centeredness, self-righteousness showing up, all contributing to the sin of pride. Here I think we can observe the opposite is at work. In light of Jesus, and that's important to say because these people are responding to the gospel and living in light of his message. These are people who are turning from pride and turning to Jesus. In light of people we have, in light of Jesus, we have people who are living God-centered, Christ-exalting, interdependent communal lives. Like I said, this this walking in humility is not just people walking around feeling sorry for themselves and looking at their shoes. This God-centeredness shows up in the fact that you see people devoted to the things that Jesus would have them be devoted to. Prayer, fellowship, breaking bread, teaching. These are not all the things that are required for you to grow as a Christian, but these are probably some of the most foundational. Prayer, the way Jesus taught it, points you to something outside of yourself, something bigger than yourself, asking for forgiveness, acknowledging the kingdom of the Lord, asking for your daily bread to be provided for you, all things that are taking place outside of of yourself. Fellowship requires us to not just focus on me and my, but fellowship and meet other people. Teaching requires us to have humility to admit that we don't know everything. And the key that holds all those things together is the word devotion. Now, devotion is a word that is difficult because we don't always think of grace and devotion or work working hand in hand together. But there are many things that as elders and as pastors we can impart to you. We can preach sermons that we work hard on and that we try to have uh, be helpful to you. We can give you lots of great books that are in the bookstore. We can form uh, ministries and women's ministries and men's ministries, and we can pray for you. But the one thing that we cannot do for you We cannot give you the results that come from being devoted. That's where each of us has to decide. Do I want to go to GCC tonight? Do I want to watch sports? Do I want to be on Instagram? Do I want to read my Bible? Do I want to be on Facebook? Do I want to fellowship and network and meet people at my local church and be in community with other believers? And each of those choices oftentimes requires us to say no to our pride and say yes to putting others and putting God first. And what's interesting about each of those things that I just described and the life of the early church in Acts is each of them require us to be face-to-face gathering with each other. Prayer, fellowship, breaking bread, all requires face-to-face gathering, if you're praying in a community sense. The challenge for us today is that we can substitute each of those things that are in Acts, prayer, fellowship, breaking bread, teaching, we can substitute each of those with technology. And just like building a tower isn't inherently sinful, there are people who build many good things in the Old Testament that are testimonies to God's goodness. Technology itself isn't inherently sinful. There are many ways I think technology is used that glorifies and honors God. But technology, if we're not careful, can be a mechanism to feed our pride and feed our dependence on ourselves. So God tells people, fill the earth and subdue it. And they said, yeah, we'll do it our own way. We're gonna build a tower. Instead, just like God can tell us many different times in scripture, prayer, fellowship, breaking bread together, devoting yourself to Christian teaching, Christian basic Christian living. And a response to each one of those could be us holding up our phones and saying, I gotta figure it out, I'll do it my own way. I got my podcast, I got my favorite pastor on YouTube, I've got my social networks where I can meet people. Like I said, none of those things is inherently sinful, but, what's tempting about them is when god gives us clear directions on things to do we can come up with our own replacements we can build our own towers and they fit in our pocket it can be as simple as you know god told me i should fellowship and be in community but i've got facebook i should join a church and submit to local elders and leaders but i've got my favorite pastor on youtube i should read my bible but i got my podcasts i use all of those things i like podcasts i like being and seeing what people post on social networks at times, at times not. But the, the challenge with all of those things is, are they adding to what God has allowed us to do and are they helping you do them more or are they replacing what God has told us to do? Is it a replacement for fellowship? Is it a replacement for prayer? Is it a replacement for teaching? That is the way the enemy tempts us all the time, at times. It's not outright rebellion against God, it's finding a cheap replacement. It's not outright rebellion against God at Babel. It's, yeah, let's build a tower instead. We're supposed to fill the earth, but let's, let's build a tower. I'm supposed to be gathering locally with believers, but I'll stream something on YouTube. It is the cheap replacement, oftentimes, that slows us down. The challenge with each of those things is that there are times where perseverance and growth is hard, and we want the replacement. We want the thing that's the the easier, simpler way out. And we don't want to keep grinding away at the same simple, basic things. Anyone who's been a Christian for a long time can tell you that there are times where growth as a believer feels easy and it comes natural. And there are times where prayer and fellowship and breaking bread and submitting to teaching and reading your Bible feel really difficult. And the, uh, the thing that can spur the growth in those seasons, for better or for worse, is community. Community is an amplifier of the direction that we go. In Babel, you see it at work. Come, let us build for ourselves. They, they build a communal consensus. This is a good idea. And you see it in Acts. Together, praying, breaking bread, fellowshipping. Community will amplify your direction for better or for worse. There's a difference in Acts and Babel. One shows pride and God opposes them. One shows humility, God shows grace to them. Each of us have a choice today in the type of community that we want to build. It's the same choice that the onlookers in Acts 2 had. After this amazing event happens where people can hear in their own language the gospel for the first time, God unites the nations that have been scattered and they're allowed to hear about Jesus and come together, the people who were onlooking said, these people must be drunk. There's no other way to explain what's going on here. And Peter said to them, no, this is the gospel. And this is the response that each of us as onlookers to God's grace can respond to. It says this, Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, be baptized, each one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So turning from pride is not just turning to a better version of yourself. It is turning to Jesus. In order to turn from pride, we have to turn to Jesus. And the first step in that, as Peter said very clearly, is to repent and be baptized. After you've been baptized, our ongoing recognition of the need for Jesus' work in our lives is to take communion, to remind ourselves that His body was broken for us, that His blood was shed for us. And He did that so that we can turn from our pride and turn from our sin and turn to Him and receive grace.
1: Thanks for taking a minute to watch this video. My name is Pastor Chris Moran. I'm one of the pastors at Eternal City Church in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania. Eternal City is a church that values biblical authority. We teach the Bible verse by verse, week by week, and we are seeking to eventually preach the whole way through the Bible. We believe that Jesus is God as he claimed to be, and his person and work are the center of the entire Bible. We believe that the Great Commission is still relevant today for Christians, that Christians are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching disciples to obey all that Jesus commanded. Eternal City is a church that values diversity, in that we are a church of all kinds of people, cultures, classes, colors, and capacity. We are a church that values community, and we seek to see our members hold one another accountable and build each other up in discipleship. We are a church that has a plurality of leadership for pastors and deacons who are servants who serve under the pastors. If this sounds like an interesting church to you, we would love for you to visit our website to find out more about us eternalcity.org, or come visit us on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m., 1300 Swissville Avenue, Wilkinsburg, PA, 15221. Hope to see you soon.